And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Again, may he write its eternal truth on every one of our hearts. Let's pray. O Lord, would you send us the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that as we hear your word read, as we have, and as we study it together, we might be given understanding and faith to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, even he who speaks to us here. And it's for his sake we pray this. Amen. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I suspect that in our wider North American Christian church, this is one of those commandments where we don't entirely understand what it's getting at in many cases. We either misunderstand it or we might inadequately understand it. I think my hunch is that many folks assume that if they didn't use God's name as a curse word or as a substitute for an expletive, they're doing pretty good. I didn't use God's name as a swear word. I didn't use it next to an expletive. I didn't use the name of Jesus in a blasphemous or disrespectful way. So I'm clear. I'm doing pretty well. Didn't break that commandment, so check. Commandment number three. Let's move on down that list. Well, let's not be too hasty. Because biblically speaking, there is a lot in a name. Sometimes the idea of names communicating something more Sometimes we catch glimpses of that idea in our culture. Not always, but sometimes we get glimpses of that. For example, some decades ago, Chevrolet learned the hard way that the Chevy Nova wasn't selling so well in Spanish-speaking and Latin American countries. Why? Well, in Spanish, the verb nova means no-go, doesn't go. Well, as you might imagine... Latin American consumers were not terribly interested in buying a car whose name means essentially won't move or can't drive. Now, in our culture, that same notion doesn't necessarily translate so easily. If I were to tell you, my name is Sean, that doesn't necessarily communicate much about who I am, my personality, my quirks, my attributes and character. You'd have to get to know me a bit to know more of my history, my temperament, etc., You're not going to get all that just by me telling you my first name. But not so with God. There's a lot wrapped up in his name. In fact, that's one of the key ideas in Exodus. Remember way back some months ago to Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses from the midst of the bush and he discloses an iteration of his divine name. They're not going to believe me, Moses says to the Lord. They're not going to listen to me. And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, Moses, that I am has sent you. 
He then gives Moses the divine name, and he says, Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. So clearly, the the invocation of God's name is meant to conjure up some kind of reference point, a a connotation to the people of Israel. They're doubting. Moses says, they're not going to believe me. God says, Moses, you tell them my name. That'll do a lot of the heavy lifting for you because that's going to conjure up a reference to them that they're going to get. Tell them, I am, your God is sending me on a mission to retrieve you. He says that to Israel. Okay, this God we know. This God we have heard of. So the name identity connotation is embedded in the theology of the book of Exodus right from the beginning. Name and identity being intertwined and connected. And that notion is being picked up here once again in the third commandment. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord shall not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Three things I want for us to think about with regard to this commandment. First of all, God's identity. God's name. What does it convey about God himself? His identity is bound up with his name. That's the first thing. Secondly, our discipleship is bound up with God's name. Certainly our worship, what we're doing here right now, this very morning, but beyond that, how we live every day as his people. We'll think about that. And then thirdly, our eternity is bound up with God's name. So we'll think along those three lines. First then, let's think about God's identity is bound up with God's name. Quite simply, how we speak about God matters a very great deal. What's in a name, Shakespeare once asked. Well, the answer, according to Holy Scripture, is when it involves God, there's a very great deal in a name. Indeed, for God, a name is more than a mere label. God's name, as one man said, is shorthand. It stands for his being and his work, so that God's name is virtually a definition of God himself, who he is, what he's like, and what he does. Close quote. Now, it really is shorthand for who he is, and so to invoke God's name is to invoke really a a kind of abbreviation or a shorthand reference for his attributes, his being, his nature, his work, his covenant, his faithfulness to that covenant, his wondrous works of old and his fulfilled promises yet to come. To invoke God's name conjures up all those associations and all those connotations and more. We already mentioned Moses at the burning bush. Eh, yeah, is the Hebrew for I am. And it is linguistically connected to God's name, Yahweh, which is usually rendered Lord, L-O-R-D, in our English Bibles. Eh, yeah, I am, Yahweh, his name. You can, you can hear, hopefully, that oral connection as his name, Yahweh, is derived from the Hebrew verb to be. God's covenantal name signifies being itself. He is the eternal one, the self-sufficient one, the independent, uncreated God, the great I am. In him, there is no shifting or shadow of turning. The holy, holy, holy God who is and who was and who is to come. That wonderful hymn by Horatius Bonner, Scottish minister from the 19th century, his words get right at this theology. I change, Horatius is pondering, I change, he changes not. And and another line, 
Sure as Jehovah's name, tis stable as his steadfast throne, forevermore the same. The name of God is shorthand for his being, his nature, his essence. And when we use God's name, we we are invoking the fullness of his attributes and, and the totality of who he is. But God's name is not only identified with who he is, his, his essence, his nature in and of himself, but also what he's done. Not only who he is, but what he's done. His wondrous deeds, his saving acts that his right hand and holy arm have accomplished. And really, what I'm doing here, what I'm outlining, is no different than what you'd find in any good book of systematic theology. This is a classic way of studying the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God, who he is and what he's done. But it's interesting in the scripture where the name of God is very, very closely associated with his saving deeds. For example, Psalm 106, verse 8. God saved his people. Why? For his name's sake. Psalm 54, verse 1. The psalmist prays, O God, save me by your name. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Or perhaps that wonderful verse from Psalm 124, verse 8. Uh, It is said that John Calvin used this line as his opening sentence, his call to worship at practically every public worship service that he conducted. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now that's interesting. You're, You're reading along in your Bible and you might think, our help is in the 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 power of the Lord, the the might of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. And there are other psalms that say basically that, but here it says our help is in the name of the Lord. The point being, so closely identified, so closely identified with his saving deeds is his name, that to think of one is necessarily to think of the other, at least in the mind of Scripture. So closely associated with God's name is the fact of saving, rescuing his people, that when you invoke God's name, you can't help but think of it. The point was for God's people to hear God's name and think, the Lord, Jehovah, he's all-powerful, he's all-sovereign, yes. But more than that, this God saves. He rescues his people. He redeems sinners. Isn't he utterly glorious? And of course, this wonderful theme carries right on into the New Testament, and we see it terminate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. These two great themes, God's person and his saving deeds. Jesus invokes the divine name famously, John 8, 38. Before Abraham was, I am. His own name, his very name itself, the name Jesus, as the angel told, told Joseph, his name means the Lord shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus comes from the Greek, the Greek version of the name Joshua. Joshua and Jesus, same name. Yehoshua, Jehovah saves. The Lord saves. That's his name. That's what it means. Yahweh saves. Jesus. Many commentators also point out Romans 10, verse 13. The Apostle Paul quotes from the prophet Joel. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Now, Joel, when he wrote that word, L-O-R-D, 
It's the divine covenantal name that's being used. He's using all caps, L-O-R-D. So Yahweh is the name that Joel is invoking there. But Paul, in Romans 10, verse 13, he's using it in reference to Jesus Christ. So you see how Paul thinks? Yahweh, the, the God of earth and heaven, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh incarnate, and whoever calls on the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus, whose very name itself communicates and conveys this unspeakable precious truth. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And it is a precious truth. That's why the name of God itself is so precious, and that's why Christians revere it so much. What's in a name, Mr. Shakespeare? Well, when it comes to the God of the Bible, everything. The name of God is so precious and incalculably sacred because it stands for God's being and work, who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. This name means pardon and liberty. It means life and light. No wonder Christians treat it with such reverence. That's why why it should be so unthinkable that we would take it on our lips in a crass or vulgar way. For us to invoke God's holy name as an expletive or a curse when we smack our thumb with a hammer by mistake or when someone cuts us off in traffic or when we receive such some unpleasant news. It's just a word, a name, some will say. Well, perhaps. But imagine if you will, imagine if you will, your spouse, after a prolonged and heated argument, takes off his or her wedding ring throws it in the trash right in front of your face. Or finds your wedding photo, the two of you posed at the front of the church together, looking beautiful and so happy. And your spouse takes that photo out of the frame, rips it right down the middle, throws it at the floor, right at your feet. It's just a piece of jewelry. It's just a photo. Well, yes, in one sense. But that item, in its own way, is representative of your relationship, the, the reality of the two of you bound together, a token of your love and affection, a token of the pledges and vows you made one to another. And to show that item such a despising is, in a sense, to despise the very relationship itself. That's why you did it, after all, to insult the other person and really get that knife twisted a little further between the ribs. So bound up is that item with the reality which it signifies. To show such a despising of God's name communicates utter blasphemous disrespect to God himself. So bound up is that name with the reality of the person whom it signifies. How unthinkable, how unthinkable that a Christian should use this name so sinfully, so vainly, to so despise the God that it represents, or perhaps our covenantal relationship with him that it signifies. The name is more than a mere name tag. It stands for all who God is, and for all who he is to us. And thus it is unspeakably sacred and precious. So that's the first thing. God's identity is bound up with God's name itself. But then secondly, and more briefly, our discipleship is bound up with God's name. 
We said earlier that taking God's name in vain means more than merely using God's name as a curse word, and that's true. It's not less than that, as we thought about just a moment ago, but this command does mean more than that. As we have said, and we will say many more times, I'm sure, these Ten Commandments are summary points teaching on a more comprehensive understanding of what God's law means for our lives. And this command helps us understand the right and the wrong ways to use God's name. And so, under this second point, let's just think about the right ways and the wrong ways, just some, to use God's name, positively and negatively. First, positively. Look again at the verse. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That word take, literally in Hebrew, is to lift up. To lift up. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. Often this word gets used in a legal context, in taking a vow. Someone would lift up their hand and swear by the name of God. Not unlike the practice we see in our courtrooms even to this day. Swearing, vowing by the name of God. This phrase also appears in the context of worship. Psalm 134, one of my favorite psalms, it says, Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Lift up in a posture of reverence and adoration and worship toward God. I really like how one man put it. He said, whether it's in prayer or praise, whether it's in solemn oaths and vows, the third commandment is more than a mere prohibition and a warning. It is also an invitation and summons to take up God's name and to honor him and bring him glory. It presses upon us a duty to praise and to worship, not to stay away, but to press in, reverencing his name, his being, his saving work to the glory and praise of God. Close quote. When we invoke God's name, when we speak of him, there ought to be a gladness and joy to it. That's not a hard and fast rule for every nanosecond of your existence, but that to invoke his name is to call to mind all of his plentiful mercies to us. Should, should that not at least some of the time produce a holy gladness in our disposition? To think of the Almighty God, God come down in Christ to take on flesh and to live and to die and to rise again for sinners, for you, Christian. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He set his love upon us and he adopted us and we get to call him Abba, Father, and to know him with a, with a glorious familiarity so that there is a joy as well as a reverent weightiness when we speak of our thrice holy God. I hope, I really hope that comes through in the pulpit ministry here, that when the word of God is preached and the name of God is taken upon these lips, that there is a palpable reverence as well as a heart-thrilling joy that is communicated. I hope that's what you do too when you worship. This posture of the soul is part of what that first petition of the Lord's Prayer is getting at. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We want to honor your name, Lord God. We want to reverence you. It is our delight to praise you. There is a, if I can put it this way, there is a splendid permission, yes, command even, given in this third commandment, to take up the name of God, to lift it up, to put it on your hearts and lips, to speak it, to sing it, to think on it, to pray it, to meditate upon it, so that our hearts trumpet forth something 
of his majesty, his grace, his mercy, his holy purity and justice, his goodness and his fearsome power. As born-again children of God, how could we not? A positive way to take up God's name, but then negatively, how not to use his name? Notice that phrase, in vain. Now, very, very woodenly, we could translate it as, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to nothingness. We usually think of the curse word example, but there are other more subtle ways that we violate this command. We might think of it in the context of worship. For example, we take the name of the Lord our God in vain when we take it thoughtlessly. When we sing his name while our minds are drifting off elsewhere, when we pray his name but our minds are drifting, not at all engaged in the the pleadings that are being uttered, how easy it is to drift into rote recitation and not think at all about what it is we're saying. I wonder if you find yourself doing that sometimes. So familiar is the Lord's Prayer. So familiar are these psalms and hymns, the creeds and doxologies and glorias. Do you just rattle them off without really mentally checking in, sincerely uttering what we are praising and confessing, uttering vain words? This is the classic Reformation maxim. Our life with God and our worship of God is meant to involve both our mind and our heart. Outward participation in the liturgy, yes, of course, but also sincere engagement of the heart, tracking along, attentive, engaged participation while we're doing all that it is we're doing. But not only in our worship, but we can use God's name vainly by the way we live our lives, by the way our lives might contradict the truths that we profess to believe. Christians are those who bear the name of God. Several commentators point out here that we've been baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. John, later on in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, chapter 22, verse 4, he sees in this vision Christians with the name of God and with Christ written on their foreheads. We've been adopted of God. We, we bear the family name. And yet, as Paul reminds the Jews in Romans 2, verse 24, Because of you, he says, because of your life conduct, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Does our life, brothers and sisters, does our life evidence a lie of what we claim we believe? He calls himself a Christian. Did you see what he did? Did you hear what she said? That's the challenge of the third commandment. And such a life where we we take the name of God, but our actions evidence something quite contrary, taking the name of God vainly, our life not adorning our profession, that can have utterly dire consequences. It's one thing to be embarrassed when our family and friends notice our ill behavior, or if we're called to account by our church elders because our reputation is besmirching the name of Christ in our community. That's one thing. But remember the warning given by our Lord Jesus, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never 
knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's chilling, and it calls from some serious introspection for some of us. Lord, was I not here in this church building all the time? In all the services and all the classes? Doing all the studies and the reading? Helping out in the kitchen and the nursery rotas? I went on that mission trip. I was in that college ministry. I didn't do the things that all those other college students were doing. I did so many kind things for others. How am I not on your good list? And yet to so many, Christ Jesus on that awful day will say, Get away from me. I never knew you. Here's the question. You who name the name of Christ, you who claim God's name, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you embraced Christ by faith? Nothing in your hands you bring simply to his cross. You cling foul, you to the fountain fly. Is this the cry of your heart? Wash me, Savior, or I die. Tragically, lifting up God's name to nothingness, using his name in vain, is absolutely epidemic in our culture, isn't it? There's a pastor friend of mine who reminded me of how the pastoral scholar David Wells put it some years ago, and I'm I'm slightly paraphrasing for time's sake. He says this, It's one of the defining marks of our time that God has become weightless, unimportant. Many who claim to believe in him consider him less interesting than television, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. Close quote. Is God inconsequential to you, friend? You you come here to worship, beloved. Think think hard on this, some of you. You take his name on your lips with creeds and confessions, with prayers and songs. The ministers say, this is the holy word of God. You hear it proclaimed. You add your amen. Maybe. So the statements you see and you have felt the baptismal waters, you've taken the blood and body of Christ and the bread and cup. but, But if pressed, if pressed, backed into a corner, you regard everything as one big, eh, a shrug. Jesus Christ, I could take him or leave him. Consider the worship of Christ and really Christ himself as inconsequential, considering him as unimportant, as uninteresting, as weightless, taking the Lord's name in vain is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And that leads us naturally to our third, final, and very brief point. God's identity is bound up with his name. Our discipleship is bound up with his name. But also our eternity is bound up with his name. You see, there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be true. There will be no vanity then. Confessing Christ is Lord... And for many, it will be a joyful day, bending the knee and confessing this truth with joy as they enter into his presence forever. However, for others, on that day, when all vanity and blasphemy is ended, it will be too late. Christ will come, and they will bend the knee and confess with the mouth in submission and acknowledgement of his holy lordship, but it will be too late. Some will confess it in horror, and despair, 
as Christ casts them away, these workers of lawlessness. And so, the question that the third commandment presses upon us is, how shall we take the name of the Lord? For that will determine our eternity. Are we those who take his name on our lips today in in this very service with a holy gladness? And when he comes again, we shall receive him with joy, should we be here on this earth, if he should tarry? Or, to our utter horror, will we desperately, desperately try to concoct a hasty spiritual resume? Lord, Lord, look, look what I did, and it will fall on utterly unsympathetic ears. There is one, even now, who sits at the right hand of God, reigning as Lord, pleading as the high priest and intercessor for his people. He is there, and he has not yet returned as condemning judge. Will you not have him plead for you today? While while it is still called today, as Hebrews puts it, there is still time. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Beloved, won't you flee to Christ for refuge? Won't you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead? And no longer confess him in vain. But finally, at last, trust him alone to be your redeemer and king now and forever. Praise God and bless the Lord for the ministry of the third commandment today. Let's pray. Lord, truly, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Impress these truths upon us and seal your word to our hearts. For Jesus' sake we do ask it. Amen.